Welcome to TWIST. This week in sustainability, my name is Felicia Etzcorn. My co-host is Jamie Ferguson. Hello. And I'm from Virginia Tech. <laughs> Jamie Ferguson is from Emory and Henry College in Southwest Virginia. We're both in Southwest Virginia. Tonight, our guest is Dr. Michael Stukides. Uh, from Aristotle University of Thessalonikis, and he's going to speak to us about Haber-Bosch process, but electrification, the, the electric chemical Haber-Bosch process, and that's, we'll, we'll go into it. So, um, Dr. Stukides, may I call you Michael or Mike? Which do you prefer? Michael is fine, please. Okay. Uh, Michael, um, why don't you give our listeners a little bit of your educational background? Okay. I grew up uh, in Greece and uh, from 1973 to 1978, I got my undergraduate degree. It was in chemical engineering at uh, the National Technical University of Athens. Then in 1978, I came to United States and I did my PhD at MIT in the chemical engineering department. In 1982, right after I finished, I joined the faculty of Tufts University chemical engineering department again. And I stayed there uh, for 12 years. Okay. I don't know why, but I guess I was homesick. Homesick. I didn't realize the situation. I didn't know what will happen next. But I moved in 1993. I moved to back to Greece, and I got this position at the chemical engineering department of Aristotle University of Thessaloniki. I have been there since then, and this is an outline, sort of, of what my career has been. Um, for the last uh, 20 years, believe it or not, uh, because I like it, um, uh, my research is focusing on uh, the electrochemical synthesis of ammonia. Right. I'm doing other things, but uh, this is my what my love for the last 20 years yeah it's what you have a passion for that's great uh, and okay. it's, it's very much needed um so first um i'd like to just give a little background on the haber bosch process so haber was a german chemist who created a method to synthesize ammonia from nitrogen in the air and hydrogen that was, I believe, derived from uh, methane. And so they, ammonia is NH3. And so it has, basically you have to start with the nitrogen from the air for the nitrogen source. And then you have to react methane, CH4, 
in a way to give you hydrogen gas, which then reacts with the nitrogen. It's a very, it's a multi-step chemical process. Um, but this was a way of capturing nitrogen out of the air. And originally the purpose was for explosives. And I, I, some people may remember in Oklahoma City that there was a, a bombing, uh, Oklahoma City uh, bomber used fertilizer. And so what had happened was that after, I think it was World War II, or maybe it was World War I, but Haber started making um, ammonia for fertilizers. Was one and after World War One? Okay, and um, this was ammonium nitrate primarily, right? Um, and so this really feed, feeds the world. Um, we have, you know, I don't know how many billion people at this point—seven billion people on the planet—and growing. And so it's really difficult to fertilize enough agricultural land with organics. And so this is, this is actually the beginning of the term organic agriculture because they switched to an inorganic fertilizer, ammonium nitrate. Um, most people don't understand how, how did we get to organic agriculture? Well, it's because there was this inorganic fertilizer. And um, the fertilizer is really important. And Bosch, I believe, uh, improved upon the Haber process at some point. I don't have the timeline, but that's not really germane to what we're talking about. So, Michael. Uh, maybe a sort uh, of introduction to the ammonia synthesis and then come to the electrochemical synthesis. Uh, I just want to add a few things to what you said about the Haber-Bros process. The main problem, uh, first of all, the, uh, the, uh, the first drop of industrial ammonia started in uh, 1913. Haber was a chemist who was uh, doing experiments. Uh, no, okay. As you said, ammonia is a molecule that contains nitrogen and hydrogen, three hydrogens. Uh, but it contains nitrogen in an atomic. Uh, the air is a, a, a nitrogen is abundant in the air. It's eighty, almost eighty percent of the air that we breathe. It is in the molecular form. It is extremely difficult to break this nitrogen-nitrogen bond. This is, by the way, one of the strongest bonds in nature. The, uh, yeah, and we, we draw it as a triple bond. The triple bond of nitrogen, exactly. So uh, the main uh, effort at Guinea was, all, the, all their efforts was how to find a catalyst that can catalyze this breaking, the, what, uh, uh, to convert nitrogen, uh, molecular nitrogen into atomic nitrogen. And of course, then combine with hydrogen and make ammonia. Uh, they, uh, now, this uh, is one of the problems. 
to catalyze this reaction. Uh, the other problem is that uh, this reaction, if you write it down, I don't have to do it, but ammonia is produced when one molecule of nitrogen combines with three, three molecules of hydrogen to make two molecules of ammonia, which means four volumes make two volumes. This means that the reaction is limited by equilibrium and the higher the pressure, the higher the conversion you get. So, because these are gaseous molecules exactly. that you have to push together, um, okay. and and so uh, we haven't really introduced the concept of entropy yet. But entropy, if you're going from four molecules of nitrogen and three hydrogens to two molecules of ammonia, then you're decreasing the entropy of the system, which is very um, costly, energetically costly. Yes, indirectly what you're saying is uh, either you have to go to very high pressures, which means you will uh, uh, supply electric, uh, supply energy in the form of work by pressurizing the system, or you have to work at lower temperatures where the equilibrium, if you work at low temperatures, then the reaction kinetically cannot go because it's a difficult, it's a very difficult reaction to take place. So the trade-off solution was to operate at about 400 to 500 degrees centigrade and at 200 atmospheres pressure. Right. One thing is that uh, the temperature and pressure that you have to operate. The other thing is that, of course, one of the reactants is abundant in the air, it's nitrogen. The, but uh, nature doesn't have free hydrogen. You have to find hydrogen from somewhere. The least cost uh, source for hydrogen is uh, natural gas, methane. So the Haber-Bosch process. So, so I would, you know, if, if I weren't a chemist, I would think water would be the best it's source yes. um, because it's, and the most abundant. But the problem with water is it's in a very oxidized state and that's hard to remove hydrogen that can be used to reduce nitrogen. It's harder to remove reducing exactly. hydrogen from water than it is to remove the reducing hydrogen from methane. Yes. So it's the difference in the electronegativity of an oxygen bonding partner versus a carbon bonding partner. So right. carbon being That's less tightly to the electrons that hydride sort of equivalent, hydrogen in its electrons can Right. Them. So when we're talking about reducing yeah. hydrogen, Jamie is correct. It's it's you have to move the electrons with the hydrogen, but the hydrogen can't pull them away from oxygen because oxygen hangs on to them so tightly. Correct. Uh, therefore, uh, they had to prepare what they call synthesis gas, which is the a mixture of nitrogen and hydrogen, and the hydrogen had to be extremely pure, should not contain 
oxygen compounds, sulfur compounds that can be found in natural uh, anyways. So one of the big uh, fractions of the cost of ammonia was to purify the synthesis, to prepare the synthesis gas. Okay. The second was to pressurize. You had to spend a lot of work to pressurize the system. And uh, other than that, the overall reaction, as you said before, compared to uh, uh, getting hydrogen from water, was not uh, that uh, energy uh, demanding because the reaction of hydrogen and nitrogen itself, just this reaction to produce ammonia is exothermic. In other words, if you didn't have the other problems to find, to prepare hydrogen from nitrogen gas, to pressurize it, to purify it, the energy consumption for the uh, process would be very, very small. Right now, about more than 1% of human-made energy is for ammonia synthesis. Right. More, uh, maybe 1.5 percent. Yeah, and I don't. I, I'll tell you how many tons. About three tons of carbon dioxide are produced per one ton per ton of ammonia. That's a lot. That's a lot. And uh, having said that, uh, maybe we can move. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. Right. So okay. we can give a little bit more background on on the okay. um, hydrogen synthesis. So hydrogen is in a two-step process. The first step is called methane steam reforming. Yes. And it's methane plus water goes yes. to carbon monoxide and three hydrogen molecules. And then the second step is called the water gas shift reaction, and that's taking carbon monoxide plus water going to carbon dioxide and hydrogen. So mm -hmm. out, of the, out of those two steps, you get essentially four molecules of hydrogen from you know, one molecule of methane and two molecules of water. So that, that's the net reaction. Yes. Um, and so Haber's catalyst, I, can you remind me what Haber's catalyst is that, that made this? It was, uh, it was based on iron, but it was not just iron. Uh, they tried, if I recall correctly, 3000 materials. And ah. finally they came up with uh, hematite. It's a, an iron, uh, iron three, oxygen four, I think, but with many additives such as uh, pota uh, potassium oxide uh, and so many others. There is, a, I don't know how many patents on this. Uh. Okay, so it's very, very complicated. It's complicated. The basis is iron. Iron base. So it's sort of a chicken soup catalyst. It, it was from back in the day when they would... Yes. Uh, then when they would just... What you got was not from careful calculation and you know computation Correct. and all that but it was just what my phd advisor but, called suck it and see whatever that means exactly. in, in uh, liverpool scouser dialect suck it and but see. Uh, yeah. this uh, this reaction was so important uh, that uh, and so difficult 
to make it work that uh, probably the, the most well-known uh, catalyst of the previous century and this century was Michel Boudard, professor at Stanford for many years. He called this reaction weather reaction of heterogeneous catalysis because all these surface science catalysis uh, techniques to study the uh, they started because <laughs> they wanted to to improve uh, to find a, a catalyst for this reaction yeah why uh, let me add now maybe it's time that as you said at the beginning ever since this reaction uh, started uh, industrially to, to be run industrially the agricultural uh, production worldwide increased i think by about three times and this means that had this reaction not been discovered, this process not been discovered, the population of the world today, about half of fixed nitrogen, atomic nitrogen that is found today on the earth, is from this reaction. The other half is from plants. I forgot to tell you that plants and bacteria can do that job much, much better than humans. And they do that for millions of years. They do it with iron-based enzymes, which Jamie and I have talked yes. about quite a bit. Um, enzymes are catalysts. And that's how plants... Nitro nitrogenase. Nitrogenase. That nitrogenase. I want to put in a plug for, uh, for Michael Pollan's book. It's old, but it's good. Uh, not that old. The Omnivore's Dilemma. Right. It, it lays out all of this um, about how energy consuming this production of ammonia is and how it um, and how it is linked to, you know, the agricultural revolution, so to speak. And, and he also talks in that book about uh, where I'm from, which is uh, North Alabama. And the Tennessee Valley Authority was an electrification and damming of the whole Tennessee River system, which is one of the biggest river systems in the United States. And, you know, a large part of, um, of the energy from the tallest dam went to a, a Haberbosch plant um, to make munitions, which then, uh, after the wars, uh, was converted to, um, to fertilize, a fertilizer plant for, you know, all the agriculture around there. But, yeah, that's a good book. Anyway. One more, more thing about ammonia synthesis. Uh, at the beginning of the century, I think it was in two, uh, Science Magazine had uh, made a survey and asked, I don't know whom, probably the most distinguished scientists, what they consider as the most important discovery of the 20th century. It was not internet, it was not the decoding of DNA, it was not uh, airplanes, it was not uh, nuclear energy, it was not, well, it was ammonia synthesis. Wow. Wow. I couldn't believe, when I read it, I couldn't believe it. The reason being that uh, uh, human, humans would starve without Yeah, ammonia. we need to feed the world. So uh, Humans starve anyway, but that's not the fault of ammonia synthesis and that's because we're not very good at recycling our elements i guess all i guess all the nitrogen we have to try harder yeah yeah <laughs>
Yeah. Before we get to Mars, we got to, we got to get better. <laughs> we, we, we need to find a way to use urea. <laughs> so electrochemical Haber-Bosch. Okay. The electrochemical Haber. And, and have you always worked on electrochemical Haber-Bosch or did you start on the classic Haber-Bosch and kind of work your, can, can you give us a little bit of a, for, for a, a kind of timeline of how this, chemistry has evolved because I want to ask you tonight about perovskites because they're an important material yes. now um, and you know our listeners maybe could get a uh, a lay person okay. uh, an explanation of those but yeah ever since this process uh, the Haber boss process started as I told you it was very high pressures and temperatures around 400 to 500 degrees. The efforts of all the scientists were in this direction. What? Try to find a better catalyst in a, and so they could work at lower temp, which would give higher conversions. So every, every year, every 10 years, we were reducing the temperature to some extent, but uh, we were also reducing the pressure. So at the beginning, it was like 300 bars, 300 atmospheres. Now we have gone down to 150 bars. Now, uh, as you mentioned before, we talked about plant, uh, the ammonia synthesis with uh, enzymes. The way the, the, the plants uh, produce ammonia, hydrogen and hydrogen is not from hydrogen exactly. It is electrochemical. They use protons, electrons, and nitrogen of the air. So this is sort of, at least in my group, the, the incentive to look at electrochemical synthesis. I said, why don't we try to, to imitate nature and see if we can produce electrochemically? What would the advantage be? You don't need pressures. You don't need high pressures. And also, you don't need to purify hydrogen because uh, in an electrical cell, the reactants are separated from the product from ammonia. And so you don't have to purify and spend so much money to purify hydrogen. And uh, that was one. The, to, you avoid the pressures. Actually, if you use protons instead of hydrogen, these four volumes producing two volumes in the catalytic process is reversed because you start from one volume of nitrogen and you produce two volumes of ammonia. So in essence, you don't have to work at high pressures. Oh, cool. Yeah, I, thought, I knew you would like that. <laughs> okay, and so we did that in 1998 was the first time that we, we did that when when I say we did it, it was the first production from gaseous hydrogen and nitrogen. Because why? Because we used solid electrolytes that could operate at 500 degrees centigrade. Uh, in 1980s, in the 80s, some French scientists uh, who were material scientists discovered solid material. And so we could use solid electrolyte instead of an aqueous. I, I just want to point out for our listeners that we talked about solid electrolytes with um, in our battery episode with Lou Madsen. Okay. But that was an organic 
solid electrolyte and th not a ceramic electrolyte. Inorganic. Exactly. Right. After we proved the feasibility of the process, since then, in the last 20 years, there have been many, many studies of electrochemical production of ammonia. Most of them now are trying to convert water, actually to react water and nitrogen and make uh, ammonia. And there are some problems. There are so many works right now that I believe that uh, sooner or later we will have good results. But uh, the difference between making a using solid electrolytes and aqueous electrolytes is that, uh, as you said before, in order to split uh, water electrochemically, essentially you have to electrolyze water first and then take hydrogen and convert it to ammonia. This is harder. You need higher electric, higher amounts of electrical energy to do it, higher voltage to operate. If you use... Uh, hydrogen from natural gas of course you have the byproduct of co2 which you don't want to you don't like it but from the energy point of view it's less consuming you consume less energy i bet that there's a net gain because you're not using as much electric if you're using say coal-fired electricity there's a net benefit that you're, even though you're producing CO2, you're not producing as much as you would if you were burning coal in the, for the electricity. And we'll talk about um, the electrical sources later. Okay. Oh, I, I was ready to say something right now about this. Okay. When I say in our electrochemical hub, we use methane and steam. This methane doesn't have to be First, doesn't have to be methane. Methane it has to. It must be an, a compound that contains hydrogen. Hydrogen containing compound, for example, ethylene, ethane, or in general biomass. In other words, instead of natural gas, you can steam reform biomass and make ammonia from biomass. Excellent. So can you explain coking and whether that's a problem when you use something other than methane? I, I know that the um, we, we should probably direct listeners to the paper that we've got pulled up. What do you think? Yes. Yeah, I'll put that link in. So the, the, we're talking today about a paper that was published in Juul. Um, yes. This is in Juul, volume four pages 142 to 158 of January of this year, an electrochemical Haberbosch process. First author, Kiraku, Kiraku, last author yourself, Dukides. Uh, um, and so in this, what was our question? I've lost my train of thought. Coking, you were talking about coking. Coking, yes. You, you were talking in this paper a little bit about coking. Can you explain what, what's happening in, in coking and whether it's a problem when you have different hydrocarbon feedstocks? Yes. In general, when you have uh, the production to, to produce hydrogen from hydrocarbons, you always worry about carbon formation, coke. And uh, the usual way 
to bypass this problem, to solve this problem, is to increase the steam content. So we, you can play with the methane to steam ratio because uh, and uh, if you have high, uh, high steam to methane ratio, you can avoid uh, cork formation. Depends, of course, on what is the organic substance that you use. What, what is coke? Would it, I, I'm guessing it's some sort of thermal... Coke is carbon, carbon, essentially, it's carbon. Is it like graphite carbon? carbon. Like tar or like charcoal? It's amorphous sometimes. It, uh, it's not graphite. Usually it's It's like graphite. charcoal. Yeah. But it, it might be polyaromatic or... I'm, I'm wondering if it requires a certain number of molecules of the hydrocarbon to end up in one place. And so diluting it with water would be why, it, why you can avoid that Coke formation. Yes, as I said, if it's, if it's a complex organic molecule, formation may be more intense. But again, then you, you work with higher steam ratios. I don't know if you is your question. There is a way around it. You're saying that that it's not a that it's not another a thing that you, and problem because it will destroy your uh, your electrodes in the long run. You have to worry about this, but uh, you you can test and see what you you can put some additives on the electrode that will uh, uh, prevent the formation of coke and so. So. Um, now, in the electrochemical process, you're using, you're producing um, protons instead of hydrogen gas, and those presumably are in solution. Okay, that needs an explanation because most of the people are not familiar with these uh, solid electrolyte cells. What you do is, from one side, you have a a double chamber cell, they call it. The two electrodes are separated from a ceramic wall, let's call it. Imagine a wall that separates two rooms. And that wall, though, is a pure proton conductor, if you believe it. <laughs> it the only species that can uh, go through, pass through, are... So what do you do, we do? We pass a mixture of methane and uh, steam from one side, from the anode. The reactions take place there, and you form hydrogen. Hydrogen that is formed is converted to protons and electrons. The electrons are uh, transferred through the wires, but the protons are the only species that are transporting out to the cathode. At the cathode, they emit nitrogen, which is flowing from the, in the other chamber, and they unite, and hopefully, they produce ammonia. The problem is that they don't produce only ammonia, they produce hydrogen as well. And that's the major problem right now in electrochemical ammonia synthesis is to find a cathode that will convert protons with a high Faraday efficiency, they call it, as many as 
possible protons be converted to ammonia rather than molecular hydrogen. Right. Unless you can use use that molecular hydrogen for some other process. Well, and that's what you do, right? You use that, you manage to divert the yes. hydrogen that you make. Yes. Uh, hydrogen is a high, and when we say hydrogen there, we're talking about di dihydrogen molecular H2 gas, which is, so So for, for listeners, you know, that hydrogen, the H plus ion that's diffusing through, could, would you yes. say diffusing through the perovskite? It's not the diffusion because it's not it's not a porous material. The the conduction takes place uh, in the lattice. It, it's the mechanism uh, in the perovskite that actually it's uh, holes uh, and the protons are jumping from one hole to the other. So it's uh, it's not porous. Okay. All right. And the key, the good thing about it is that what I said before. So it's it's like chemical transport, really. Yeah. It's it's yes. through the chemically, yes. Through the ceramic wall. And uh, the reason you don't need to purify is because impurities cannot travel through. So so that instead of purifying hydrogen, you pass it from one side. But it is driven by a concentration gradient. Isn't it? Or... In our case, we had to supply electrical energy because this uh, driving force does exist, but it's very small. Because we have the resistances of the electrolytes of the materials, and if we relied upon the the the, the chemical potential difference, uh, we wouldn't have that flu the fluxes that we want. So essentially, we, right. flux for listeners is is volume of movement of stuff per time. Yes, through some medium. Yeah, per time, per area. And in yes. this case, we're talking about the protons. Uh, therefore, uh, we do we do spend electrical energy in order to achieve this transportation, but uh, I don't want to go into details of the paper. We show in the paper that we can take the unreacted hydrogen, the hydrogen that is transported as H plus and is not converted to ammonia. This is a significant amount. What do we do with this? We separate it and we pass it through another similar cell in which we do the opposite. We use air and that high unreacted hydrogen and we convert it to water and electricity. And so we use the electricity from the other cell for, for the production of ammonia. That's fantastic. Maybe it's complicated, but... That's cogeneration. You're, you're, you're co-generating yes. electricity yes. from your process is that just with a steam turbine or? But I'm not, I'm telling you only the good things. So maybe I should <laughs> be honest and tell you. <laughs> That's okay. okay. We like talking about the good things. <laughs> so if, if the numbers in this paper uh, could be better in one parameter from what you found, um, what, what, would you like to be the higher number? What what uh, yes. result would you like to be better? 
I'll say it first scientifically, it's the Faraday efficiency of the cathode. What does that mean? Right now, if we operate at the highest uh, production rates, only 6%, 5 to 6% of the protons are uh, producing ammonia. The rest, 90% plus, becomes molecular hydrogen. We have done, uh, and we saw that in the paper, uh, if we move to higher efficiencies, uh, how? By searching for more efficient catalysts. If we make that Faraday efficiency up to 35% or more, then we compete positively uh, to the existing processes, although they've been optimized for 100 years or so. And also the CO2 that we produce is much less than the conventional Haber-Bosch process. So the answer to your question is we have to, f- to increase the Faraday efficiency. And my understanding of, of that is um, that there's a lot of work going into the structure of the catalyst surface. Is that? Yes, yes. Um, so, so what can you tell us about? And the design, it's also the design. Uh, I'll tell you an example. Uh, what you said is right. It's how to make this uh, electrode efficient. Uh, uh, imagine we have the, the solid electrolyte, which is a ceramic wall. And on that ceramic wall, you deposit a porous electrode. The electrode has to be porous because otherwise the nitrogen gas cannot reach the the three-phase boundary. Now, all the game is played at the interface between the electrolyte, the electrode, and the gas phase. So you have to be careful and how to prepare that electrode. One example, why we had such such poor uh, Faraday efficiency. We couldn't make the vanadium nitrate, which was the the catalyst, adhere to the electrolyte self. And we had to use some iron, metal iron, and make sort of a mixture of iron and the vanadium nitrate in order to make it work but iron produces hydrogen rather than uh, ammonia ah. so you have to well we have to work uh, and get help from material scientists from uh, surface scientists so that iron was basically glue for you but it was reactive glue exactly and it was also an, an electron collector collect the current, current collector. But by doing this, you lose the catalytic activity of vanadium nitrate. That was the problem that we had. Okay. Some uh, researchers avoid using uh, water because they use non, in the aqueous electrolyte, they use non-aqueous electrolytes. And there, they don't have that problem of hydrogen formation, but they have other problems. The usual problem for, for most of the electrochemical ammonia synthesis processes is that most of the protons do not produce ammonia, but they produce molecular hydrogen. So you win one side, you lose from the other. Now, 
if you use a non-aqueous electrolyte, uh, for example, there is a, a group at MIT that uses uh, a mixture of alcohol and uh, organics, uh, in which you don't find water, so you're all, you don't, uh, you have a very, very high Faraday efficiency, but their resistance is very high, so they lose electrical energy because it's consumed to make the cell run. And what group is that? It's a group I'm uh, spending the sabbatical with. It's Professor Kadis Manthiram. I I also, um, because the plan before COVID was that I was going to be working on an electrochemical Haberbosch uh, process at uh, Oak Ridge with a guy named Adam Rondinone, um, who has a nano spiky carbon uh, electrode. And because it, because it makes these nano spikes of carbon, and then it's got, I think, I think it's doped with copper and it's also doped with nitrogen uh, in the carbon matrix. But that ends up being, um, because of the catalyst surface structure, it ends up being a very, uh, a very efficient one. Oh, okay. It's a nitrate. And we wanted to combine that with, um, with some ionic liquids that had good nitrogen solubility. Um, they, they found, found high Faradaic efficiency, yes. but I can't remember what their main, yes. what their main hang up is, but yeah, that Faradaic efficiency, that seems to be a really important golden goose. <laughs> it is, I, I know I've seen very fantastic Faradaic efficiency. Uh, if I recall correctly in their system, the problem is a different one. What is it? They don't get high rates of production of ammonia. Why? Because uh, even if the solubility is considerably high, it's not good enough to generate so much ammonia per unit time. So their problem is they have solved the Faraday efficiency problem, but they have not solved the uh, rate. The rate, the nitrogen solubility problem, right? And that's why we wanted to try ionic liquids that would be very uh, charge diffuse and that would um, that would have a, a high nitrogen uh, nitrogen. We're talking about nitrogen gas here uh, for the listeners. Solubility of that one reason one one uh, one hang up in that's an that's a nice factoid I suppose for aqueous electrochemical Haber-Bosch process to know is that one big hangup is nitrogen is a nonpolar molecule into gas is completely nonpolar as a molecule. And so it has like dissolves like, and it has very low solubility in water, which is a polar solvent. Um, and so if you're trying to do electrochemical aqueous Haber-Bosch ammonia production, that ends up being a, um, a real hurdle for, for people. I'm optimistic about electrochemical synthesis of ammonia for the reasons that, of course, I have to defend <laughs> what I like. But because I'll give you some numbers and you will agree, I think you before 1998, there were about altogether, I did some good search, I think, there were about altogether about uh, 30 
theory papers on ammonia electrochemical ammonia synthesis. After 1998, in the last 20 years, every year we had about gradually uh, 10-15 papers. In the last five years, we have 150 papers. Wow. So in the last five years, we have twice as many as from the beginning of the world. <laughs> that means that one way or another, Google finds the solution. So, Michael, you also have a review article where you have a table with lots and lots of the catalysts um, that have been tried. Which is your favorite? Ah, yes. The favorite catalyst? Uh, in that uh, respect, I will agree with, uh, uh, as for uh, Jamie, you, you said that uh, at the beginning of the century, of the 20th century, they were trying, what did you, how did you call it this? Uh, I, I call it a chicken soup approach. I think I. Yeah, the chicken soup. I think I heard somebody refer to something else as a chicken soup approach. Right now, now right now, science have progressed and uh, we have all these uh, marvelous uh, DFT calculations and molecular studies. And uh, those predict that the best way to proceed with ammonia synthesis electrochemical is nitrides. Nitrides. Metal nitrides. Nitrides. Vanadium nitride, chromium nitride, and so on. So uh, my favorite is nitrides at this moment. Vanadium nitrides. I, I would... Vanadium nitride is what we used. I would vote for vanadium over chromium because of its much lower toxicity and its earth abundance. But not only is it earth abundant element, it's also geopolitically very dispersed so that it's it's vanadium. not a problem there's not vanadium isn't like concentrated in in one country in yeah we talked about cobalt when we talked about batteries um being in republic of congo i believe and and that's that's geopolitically very unstable uh -huh. so vanadium is very very good because it's it's and, and it's also very lightweight. Um, so you have good mass efficiency in terms mm. of, you know, if you're, if you're using lead, um, you know, you don't get yeah. as much efficiency out of it in terms of the mass. What about molybdenum? Because molybdenum nitrate is another candidate that is good. Yeah, so. yeah. Molybdenum would be good. Okay. So we've talked about the Haber-Bosch process, how important it is for agriculture and the success of, you know, the agricultural enterprise in feeding the world. Um, we talked about Haber's catalyst and the pressures that went into it, um, the high temperature and high pressure. And then we switched to talk with um, Michael Stukaitis about um, the electrochemical Haber-Bosch process that has an interesting uh, mixture of elements for the anode. I'll just read it now. It's nickel, barium, zirconium, cerium, yttrium oxides. <laughs> 
And so, so that's a kind of a chicken soup catalyst for the, the anode. And then for the cathode, it's a vanadium nitride. And, and the cathode is where the reaction, am I correct, between nitrogen and the, and the protons yes. takes place. And so that's the one that's really critical to improve the efficiency, the electrochemical efficiency of that process. I would even say that the that worrying about the intersection between you know basically the phase boundary and so we can I, I, that might be a good principle to you know introduce to the listeners because that's also true in batteries and lots of other right um, you know particularly electrochemical uh, things is that there's got there has to be a handoff of protons of electrons there must be transport from one type of organized phase into another type of phase and you know if those phases don't speak well to each other or fit well together if you don't concern yourself with that intersection then that's a loss of efficiency or stick well together yeah so that's that's where you're having that's where your hold up currently would be i would say would that yeah would you agree michael yes yes you said it right Okay. And so, so where we go from here is that um, Michael would really like to get up to greater than or equal to 35% um, Faradaic efficiency in order to be competitive with current Haber-Bosch yeah. process. But the thing we haven't really talked that much about is what is the advantage of an electrochemical over a chemical, a purely chemical process. I mean, we 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 talked about it a little bit when yes. we talked about protons not being gas. You know, the difference between gas yeah. and that's protons. one thing. Yeah. But you know, you're still using electricity, and so Michael and I had a conversation earlier when I invited him for the podcast about the electrification of industry. Do you want to say a few words about that? Yes, yes. Uh, I, I tell you what. If uh, if you do if you produce ammonia electrochemically, you don't have to have these huge uh, plants uh, which are located. You cannot have them located anywhere. And for example. In a remote place where you have a lot of uh, not solar energy, you have wind energy or solar energy, you can have the electricity there that is produced there, you can convert it to ammonia. On the farm! On the farm! That, on the farm. And what, 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 why, why would you make uh, electricity? Why would you convert into ammonia? It's an excellent storage of energy because one nitrogen hosts three hydrogens so uh, three hydrogens uh, if you want to if you produce for suppose that you want to uh, in a remote area near the the seashore you want to produce a, a hydrogen from electrolysis of water electrical energy what are you going to do with this hydrogen are you going to carry it? You know, hydrogen is uh, is a gas and it's huge volume. Yeah, and this is this is the problem with hydrogen vehicles. Exactly. Because not only is it a gas to 
condense it down to something you can transport, you have to use a very expensive um, you know, metal like palladium to hold the hydrogen in. And then you've got a, a very concentrated and explosive form of hydrogen. So, you know, ammonia does have its problems, but it's, it's a, another way of storing hydrogen, you're saying. And if you want to go to, to carbonless fuels, which is hydrogen essentially, but ammonia is another fuel that does not produce CO2. So you can... Uh, you can use it as a currency. <laughs> yeah, the byproduct is the nitrogen. Is water and nitrogen. Nitrogen and water. And the nitrogen can can be used to make... And we mean dinitrogen gas there, folks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. not necessarily. It could also be used in the plant's amino acids and... Oh, yes, yes. Right? And, and nucleic acids and all the biological molecules that we then eat and and we need nitrogen in our diet as well so that's you know that's a good use of ammonia so i i want to try to wrap it up here so i th i think this has been a wonderful discussion we'll put links to uh dr stukati's papers and um i want to read a haiku from elemental haikus by mary soon lee nitrogen forever cycling from air to soil, roots, crops, us, exercise addict. That's the haiku. And then she has an explanation. The nitrogen cycle is the complex set of processes by which nitrogen moves between the air, the soil, and living things. Bacteria in the roots of plants, such as beans and peas, absorb nitrogen from the air and combine it into compounds used by both the plants and by the animals that eat them. Other bacteria convert nitrogen compounds from dead organisms back into nitrogen gas, returning it to the atmosphere. This brief description of the nitrogen cycle is simplified. For example, nitrogen fixation may be achieved by lightning as well as by microorganisms or the Heiber-Bosch process, <laughs> I would add. Okay, so today, um, this has been This Week in Sustainability. My name is Felicia Etzkorn. I record, um, edit, and produce the podcast. My co-host is Jamie Ferguson. And our guest today has been Dr. Michael Stukides from Aristotle University of Thessaloniki. And I really want to thank you for joining us this evening. I'll say good night. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me in this. It was a wonderful conversation. Thank you. It's been really fun. Yeah, thank you, Michael. Jamie? So uh, this is Jamie Ferguson just uh, signing off and asking you to think about it. Don't think too hard, but think about it. Bye.